1: I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week, I sit down with Caroline Bailey to talk about becoming barren at age 11 after she experienced a life-threatening infection that led to a hysterectomy. We discuss the impact knowing she would never birth children had on her identity and thought life as an adolescent through early adulthood. We also dive into her journey with foster parenting, adopting three children, and working in child welfare for the last 20 years. So if you know someone who is barren, struggling with infertility, fosters children, has adopted children, or works in the child welfare system, will you share this episode with them via text message, email, or on your social media? I believe it will encourage them no matter where they are on their journey. Let's drop into this week's conversation with Caroline Bailey from barren to Blessed. Good morning, Caroline. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. Go ahead to get us started. Introduce yourself and your family and tell everybody a little bit about what you do.
0: Okay. So my husband's name is Bruce and we've been married. We'll we'll be celebrating our 20 year um, wedding anniversary in July of this year. Um, We have three children. um, We have two middle schoolers. um, So pray for us right there. That's right. Um, (laughs) A third grader. Um, I have worked in child welfare since 2001. Um, Prior to that, I worked with senior services. So I went from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. Um, and we live in Southwest Missouri. And yeah, that's basically us.
1: Yeah. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about your story and just kind of how you ended up with the three kids that you have because they are not biological. And so at age 11, A defining event took place in your life. Will you share about that portion of your childhood, the illness that you experienced, and just a little bit about what happened?
0: So it kind of really sort of started back at age two. Um, I, my appendix ruptured and it sent um, infection um, throughout my body. And so, you know, I survived it, but they had to do a lot of cleaning up in my abdominal area, obviously. You know, at that time the doctor came out and said, she's going to be fine, but she may have problems with her period when she gets older, Mm. which you know, my mom, she's like, I don't know why I didn't question him. She just, she just didn't question him about it. So I went on with life. Um, I had a few other illnesses, but then at the age of 11, um, I went to school one morning and started getting sick at school. My teacher noticed I sort of just stopped talking, which is very unusual for me. Came extremely pale to the point to where he took me to the nurse's office. Like some, something was definitely wrong with me. So my mom took me to the doctor, and they said it was some sort of stomach bug. My doctor wasn't in at that time. It was an intern that that I saw, um, or resident, whatever.
1: They're yeah, called. Um, right.
0: And my mom pushed back and said, no, this is not normal. This is not the normal stomach bug. She is, you know, her gut instinct, her her mom instinct kicked in. And so she convinced this resident to send me over to the lab for blood work. And doing that really was one part of saving my life because my blood work came back so off the charts that they immediately hospitalized me. I was in the hospital for about a week and they could not, did not know what was going on. I was having severe abdominal pains extremely high fevers. Honestly, I was dying is what was happening. I was in the dying process. And finally my pediatrician came back into town and read my chart. He was on vacation, read my chart and immediately came into the hospital and said, there's, we've, we're going to, we're going to have to figure out what this is obviously. And where my pain was located was my lower sort of abdomen area.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So he um, called in an OBGYN who did some exams on me and did exploratory surgery? And when they opened me up, my uterus was completely full of infection. Oh my, um, gosh. my right ovary, my fallopian tubes were completely full of infection. The infection was leaking into my bladder and was starting to get throughout all of my abdominal area. Wow. So it was at that moment that they realized that they had to do a hysterectomy on me because my uterus was so expanded with infection that if it would have ruptured, it would have killed me instantly. Mm-hmm. So they had to take it out and they had to take out my right ovary and my fallopian tubes. And then of course, spent about two hours washing the rest of my body to make sure that they got all of the infection. What I've been told is that when they did my, the doctor did my append- appendectomy when I was two, that he may have poked not on purpose, of course, uh, a fallopian tube,
1: mm-hmm. just
0: such a, a small little hole that the bacterium got in there. So the bacteria at the time uh, was pretty unknown. I was only the second case in the United States to even have this bacteria. And now it's more common. It's when you hear about people um, getting, going septic, things like that.
1: It's, it's right.
0: Bactroides fragilis is what's called. And I mean, they, they had to do it or else I would have lost my
1: yeah. life. Well, so did you have no signs before that from like age two until 11, just all of a sudden, like once it hit, it hit?
0: Yes, nothing. I had, um, what's, what's even stranger is so I actually at age seven. So at two was my appendix ruptured and came out. At age seven, I had intestinal adhesions they had to have operated on and there was nothing going on there that they saw either. So it wasn't like anything was inflamed in that area. Wow. So, what the doctor described to me is the bacterium had formed like a, a cyst, basically, it kind of balled itself up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then uh, the weekend before this happened, I spent the weekend at my uncle's farm. He, he owned a big pig farm
1: okay. and I took a
0: friend with me and we had carried, it uh, sounds horrible. We carried a, a piece of a tombstone that we found on his property. I know that's, I would never do that now as an adult, as, a, as kids, you know, oh, you see.
1: Are you, I grew up in the country. We
0: did the craziest
1: okay. stuff. That does not sound weird to me at all.
0: It just sounds so disrespectful. <laughs> I just thought it was cool. Anyway, um, I had carried it on my right side, on my right hip. And so they're thinking that maybe the pressure from that is what
1: oh, caused, caused it to it. like, worse. Isn't that so interesting? Well, yeah. so what did it look like? You you have this surgery. Did you have to go on a lot of uh, medication after that to make sure that your body, you know, what was the recovery process like in those first few months?
0: Yeah. So I was in the hospital for close to a month. And I was on um, extremely high doses of antibiotics. The um, multiple insurance companies had told my parents that there was the highest dose of, an- of antibiotic they've ever seen any child ever be on. This, this was in
1: 1983.
0: Right. So mind you, keep in context to the, the time period this was in. So I, I was in the hospital for close to a month. And then my recovery from the hospital was at home for another, so probably, see, it would have been six to nine weeks, maybe. Okay. So I pretty much missed the first half of the school year
1: of right. my
0: sixth grade year. Um, yeah. I had to go to the doctor to the OBGYN like all of the time I had to be on medications. He had to check to make sure that I was okay. They had warned my parents. They think that they got it all, but they weren't sure. And so at any point it could come back. Yeah. I mean, I was, I had lost a, a lot of weight yeah. Um, I had to have multiple units of blood given to me. Um, it was it was a very serious, serious illness for sure.
1: Well, and I just think about anybody who's listening who knows what it's like to be a middle schooler, um, to have middle schoolers, to be around middle schoolers. It's a really awkward phase of life where you're just really not sure about yourself in the best of circumstances. And so you know, you were pretty much aware quickly that you would never have biological children, but how did some of those ideas kind of manifest themselves as a tween girl in your thoughts and, you know, how you related to other people? Um, and then we'll kind of get into how your faith comes into that in a little bit.
0: Um, you know, I knew immediately. And I I remember, I mean, I can see it in my head right here. You know, one thing about traumatic medical, I can only speak to this from my experience from like traumatic me- medical illnesses as a child is that I, I don't remember every single part of it. I remember just like images from it. Does that make yes. sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my doctor who is still my doctor, by the way, um, wow. and, yeah, um, and my dad were standing over me and they said, you know, you, you will always be able to make love, but you'll never be able to have children, Wow. which I know seems like a really strange thing to say to 11 year old. But again, the context, 1983, and mm-hmm. I wasn't five, I was 11. We were learning about stuff like that in school anyway. Yeah. And so I knew from the very minute I woke up from surgery that I couldn't have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, what that looked like, I mean, it didn't, I didn't understand fully the impact of it because again, I was only 11, but I immediately started to internalize feeling lesser. Yes.
1: than. hmm
0: you wouldn't have known that about me if you knew me back then. Cause I was, as soon as I was cleared and healthy enough, I, I was a, dan- a competitive dancer. I got back to dancing. I performed in theater productions, went on to middle school. I was a cheerleader. Like I was very outgoing. I made good grades. Like you would not know how much I was really struggling internally, which I think a lot of middle schoolers are.
1: You yes. Know? I know it's uh, hard to know like how much of that is from what you experienced, And how much of that is you would have struggled anyways. It just may have looked different.
0: Yeah. I think for me, even if it was normal, which I'm sure some of it was, I think though, I connected it to the fact that I couldn't have kids. Absolutely. So what that looked like was, well, you know, God must have, God must have left me on this from this miracle because he knew I'd make a bad Mm. mom or um, maybe I should have been born a boy, you know, it was completely, um, focused on. I must've done something wrong Yeah. because up until this point, other than, you know, a few hiccups health wise, you know, I had had a great childhood. I mean, my parents have been married for over 50 years, Yeah. was in dancing and had a lot of friends and active. And so this was so completely out of the blue for this to happen, Um, which I know a lot of people say that about a lot of illnesses, but so for me as an adolescent, it it just, I knew I was going to have to face it eventually, but I just kept pushing it down. I just kept pushing it down, you know?
1: Well, and did you grow up, you grew up in a a healthy family? Was it a family of faith? Were your parents Christians? I mean, how did, how was God in the picture of your life at that time in middle school?
0: So we, I did grow up um, in a Christian family and my dad He was also a professional fisherman. So he was gone a lot on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So really, it's just my mom and I going to church. But my parents were not the type that was like every time the doors open, we're there, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were pretty open-minded about a lot of things. So definitely grew up with a strong faith, but I was not part of a really super fundamental family. Um, I was allowed to express myself, to question things, you know. So Um, great. Yes. And I had accepted Jesus at the age of nine um
1: okay.
0: and was baptized and i just had this like super you know lovey-dovey feeling about him mm-hmm. about god until my hysterectomy and then all of a mm. sudden it became oh wait a minute you know
1: the wrestling begins
0: why did i fall out of his favor you know like and i remember mm. thinking things like well maybe god doesn't love me as much as i thought he did oh yeah so I think my my family struggled with that as well. Um, I can tell you, we did not go to church as much after that.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, some of that too is because my mom was also hearing things from people that did not soothe her soul. Um, and really not too many people from the church reached out to her at that time either. It was just so... Awkward, I think is the word to use that people did not know what to say to a parent whose daughter had just had a hysterectomy when she was 11. You know, I hadn't started my period
1: yet. It's so interesting because speaking of back in the 80s, I'd like to say that I feel like we've come farther in our communication ability. Like we don't look at people like they have a scarlet letter on them when something happens to them particularly something that's completely out of their control, would you say that you agree with that, that people in general can just talk about things more openly than they could then? Definitely. Especially the topic of infertility and adoption. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still some often shocked sometimes what people will say, I'm like, why would you say like that? But um, Yeah. My mom just, I asked my mom, you know, why, why did you, not ever talk about it. And she said, because no one ever asked me. And I thought, oh. see, so as, oh, see, I can be emotional because that, that kills me because yeah. I know, like, I know the pain that I went through. So knowing that my mom went through that pain too is really sad right. to me. And my dad just had a lot of anger. You know, he was just angry. Um, and it happened. Yeah. Cause he couldn't protect, you know.
1: Right. Normal you know, human emotions that we go through but it really is so helpful to have another person who's maybe strong in their faith to help you wrestle through some of that so that you're not necessarily ascribing this to God's lack of love or concern for you. Right. Yeah. And my
0: dad, you know, he, he's, he's a fixer. So he, Mm -hmm. he was like, he would probably admit this a day. He, he just wanted to get back at someone. If, if, if a doctor did this to me, he wanted to sue him. If he oh, it was just yeah. like, he just wanted like a, an ending to it that, you know, as a family, we did go on. Um, we didn't mm-hmm. really ever talk about it
1: ever. Wow.
0: Um, not until I was like 21 years old. So we just sort of pushed it aside and went back to what we thought normal was, which was, I was still doing dancing. My dad was still fishing. You know, we got back to our normal life. Yeah. Um, and, and in some respects, I appreciate that more than anything.
1: Right.
0: Um, in other respects, it, it was probably a little bit detrimental to my spiritual and mental health, I would say. Right, right. Really crashing down in my 20s.
1: Well, and that's what I was going to ask. I mean, so even all through high school, did you continue to think, oh, maybe God didn't love me that much? Or were you a typical high schooler and just basically I'm going to ignore that any of this happened to me and I'm just going to live my life now. You know, what did that look like until it came crashing down in your twenties?
0: Yeah. So I was very much a typical high schooler in the sense that I was outgoing. I love, I had, you know, social life was really important. I had friends. Um, I liked to see what the newest fashion trends were Yeah, you know, there, <laughs> all of those, it. It the eighties. Right. Um, but I, I think there was kind of like two sides to me. That was the side that I think I I sort of ex- thought the world expected of me. Yeah. Um, my nickname when I was young was a little trooper. And that's what yeah. you do, you're just a little trooper. And they would say that to me every time I had to go to the hospital or you're just a little trooper. So in my head, I'm like, well, I'm a little trooper. I'm just going to be strong because that that's what I have to be is strong. Yeah. So I did all this stuff in high school that kids in the eighties do, you know, I went out, had friends, went to dances, all that stuff But I um, really thought I would never be loved by someone yeah. like who would want a, who would want a wife that couldn't have babies, you know? Yeah. So, and things now you understand no one ever said this to me. These are just thoughts that mm-hmm. I, you know,
1: I, not- I think our own worst enemy are uh, sometimes is our own flesh and yes. the the lies that we speak over ourselves um are very very dangerous.
0: Yes. And you know and I think there's so much spiritual warfare that goes on with that as yes. well. Absolutely. Um, I know I feel like I should call that for what it is because I know the words I said to myself are not ones that come from God. They came from God.
1: That's right. You know? That's right. So
0: most people I went to high school with did not know i went to a pretty large high school for where we lived um right. but most people did not know some of my few of my friends knew but mm. a lot of people did not know as a matter of fact as i started blogging about it and being on social media about it i have had friends from high school be like i had no idea like um <laughs> you've gone through all this you know it's like, I always had to have a plan. I wanted to be in control. Like I couldn't control that part of my life. So Mm -hmm. I had to control what I could be in control of, which was you're going to go to college. You're going to get a job. You're going to be independent. Um, you're probably not going to get married anyway. So, um, you need to be able to take care of yourself. Like it was sort of that tunnel vision to not, not even focus on anything else.
1: Well, so what happened in your twenties that, what do you think really triggered everything to come crashing down for you? Did you meet your husband then?
0: Yes. Uh, oh Gosh, the 20s, it was in It was in the early 90s, which was a fantastic de- fantastic time period and decade. Um, <laughs> I would go back, I think I would go back to that time period again. But um, I so think I, I would
1: too, friend.
0: <laughs> especially right now, right? I used mean, I to go back there for a little while. Um, I uh, started having friends from high school that, that were getting married, and so I was starting to get wedding invitations in the mail, baby announcements, baby shower invitations in the mail. Um, I also at age 20 on my 20th birthday, lost my left ovary, my sole survivor ovary to assist uh, had to be removed. So I had to start on hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. So it was just, again, this reminder of like, well, you're not even female. I mean, you have to have a hormone to, you know, keep you female. And again, yeah. this is in my mind. I'm thinking this, right, right. Right. So it was a combination of that, that experience, plus just my friends getting married, having babies. It was like, every time I got something in the mail about it, it was just a reminder of what I couldn't have.
1: Mm. And
0: I know that seems really selfish to think that way, but that's just the reality. That's just how I felt like, well, yeah. And I was, I worked part-time when I was in college and, um, I was at my desk. I was a mail clerk and I was at my desk and, I was just sitting there and it just, everything just came crashing in. I mean, literally had an emotional breakdown and I went to my supervisor who thankfully knew me growing up some. So she kind of knew a little bit of my history. And I said, I need to call my parents and come pick me up. And she's like, okay, you should let me go right then. And I got in the car and I just had a total breakdown. And um, my mom and dad said, you know, we have been waiting for this moment for 10 years. Wow. Um, and so we all sat there together and cried in the car and, um, talked about it and stuff. And, uh, you know, once I kind of had that experience, I started talking with them more about it. After I got that out, I shoved it back down in again, and I stopped talking about it because then I need to focus back on school and, and all that. But I could tell like each year in my twenties, as I was getting older, it was getting harder. I really just needed to know why, like what was going to be the outcome of this, I'm not really a black and white thinker. I definitely think more in the gray on a lot of mm-hmm. subjects, but for this in particular issue, I need to know a concrete answer. Why was this for my life kind of deal? Yeah. And I had been in a few relationships, but nothing serious and definitely nothing very healthy. And this this is where it gets kind of shady, not not in a bad way. It's kind of interesting. I actually met my husband because I was dating one of his friends. So <laughs> <laughs> he just, we start off as friends and, um, you know, I would say things to him like, well, this guy I was dating at the time broke up with me. And I said to my now husband, you know, I don't understand what, you know, what, what is wrong with me. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You just hmm. deserve, you deserve better. So I kept him around as a friend. Cause he was a great guy as a friend. Right. And then, uh, the more that we, I got to know him and stuff, the more that we realized we were in love with each other yeah. and kind of how I knew was I had told them that, um, that I had had dreams growing up that I was at, at my walking down the aisle and um, to get married. And my husband walks away and says, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I can't marry someone who can have a baby. Oh, so I, I, he knew. Yeah, he knew. Yeah. Cause I was friends with them and, and we, he was like the only guy I could really talk to about it. Yeah. And, uh, he had said to me that night, like that, you know, when you love someone and you marry someone, you love them for all of who they are, mm. you know, not, not just that one aspect. And so for me, that was like the moment I thought, Oh, this guy might be worth keeping around. Like um, <laughs> that was not because, you know, I, I had talked with a, f- a few guys about it that I thought maybe we could get serious move in that direction. And it was always just like, well, maybe you should go talk to a, a pastor about it. Well, you know, it was always like they dismissed it. And my husband, he, you know, he didn't mind talking about it.
1: it at this point. Are you still wrestling with God? Is he still very much a part of your life? Like, where is your faith at this point?
0: Yeah. So my faith was definitely in the backseat. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I was in the driver's seat completely because yeah. I could do it to where I wouldn't get hurt. You know, like I wanted to be in control. Um, I did not, I was not going to church at all, had not been to church in years, but I still believed in God and I still believed in Jesus. I still consider myself a Christian. I just wasn't fully
1: sold Yeah. on this you idea. You weren't really walking with him. No. He was just no. kind of something you knew about and you said, okay, I believe you. And that's about it.
0: Yes, definitely. And I, you know, I felt like a that jilted daughter, you know, like I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't trust you fully. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to keep an arm's length away. And that's kind of how I was like an arm's length away. So my husband and I, we just, we got married and that about six to seven months before we got married or so, um, I was really struggling with infertility. I, I, I call it infertility. I, I've called it barrenness. It's right. I guess medically speaking I'm not technically infertile but um anyway I I was really struggling with it and it's like I had tried all these things I got you know I got a good education I got married I got a job I have dogs like i tried everything to fill my life not having you know why does this pain keep coming up and I said to my aunt I I think I'm I think I need to go back to church I think Mm -hmm. that's what needs to happen and so she invited me to church with her and um it was sort of in that moment that I, it was like, I It literally felt like I was the only, the only person in the, in the room, you know, like everything. I totally that, know. I get like emotional, everything that was said, every song that was saying was like hitting me right where my pain was in a good way. Yeah. That's really what kind of reconnect, reconnected me, I think to my faith. Cause I realized really, I was the, I was the one that walked away, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus never walked away from God, never walked away from me. I, I walked away, you know, Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I wasn't instantly healed from the pain. I mean, there was still obviously lots of, but I just felt like, like he was padding it a little bit for me, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not true for you, once we finally acknowledge that aspect of, okay, God did not leave me. He has not forsaken me. The pain that you experience knowing that he's actually walking with you, it, it, it's like you said, a padding, but it's almost like you really do feel him carrying some of the burden. Yes. And so it's still there. You can still see it and feel it, but you know that you're not doing it alone. Mm-hmm it's a different perspective. And so that's the thing for you carrying this label of barrenness or infertile, however um, other people want to view it Mm -hmm. can be really heavy, but God did fill your life with children. Mm -hmm. You know, what drew you and your husband, you're together, you've had this experience, you know, at church, you feel like you're growing in your faith again. What kind of led you to begin foster parenting?
0: Well, I didn't get married until I was 29, which is funny because I remember as a 16 year old telling my mom, I will not be married until I'm at least 29.
1: That's Um, hilarious. Yeah. I was 28 and I don't know about you, but I felt like I was ancient then.
0: Well, I just, (laughs) that was just the way I was going to control it. I was going to be 29 and though I didn't have a biological uh, clock ticking anyway, so why not? Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I was 29 and my husband was 30, almost 34 when we got married. And so we have been married about four and a half years or so, almost five years. And, um, we we're like, okay, <laughs> now he's pushing 40. I'm 35. Like if we're going to do this, we need to do this. And so I had met, um, a little girl in a, uh, five, at the time I was a case manager working in child welfare, which again, I had no plans on working with children. Um, the, God was like, Oh yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I ended up actually being assigned to work in the field of adoption, which was like, are you kidding me? It's like, I was being forced to deal with it, you know, of all people for this position, you hired me, but I needed a job. And looking back now, you know, faith, it's so much easier to look back at things Mm -hmm. in the rearview mirror through the lens of faith, because you're like, ah, yes, that's where you connected those dots, you know,
1: that's right. That's right. That's how we see his faithfulness.
0: That's right. But I had met a little girl in a, in a foster home and I, this has seems so naive to say this and I like cringe when I hear other people say it, but I honestly felt like she was meant to be my daughter. Like I went home and I said, I think, I think I met our daughter today. And my husband's like, what? I'm like, I think I met our daughter today. And so we end up finding out that um, she was going to be available for adoption so we hurried up and got in the classes and all this stuff. And then um, about five or so months into our process, she ended up being placed into another family for adoption and everything just came crushing down on me. Like, okay, God, thank you for pulling the rug out for me again. I finally got brave enough to sign up for these classes. And then this happened. Um, but that's okay. You know, um, we, we ended up continuing the process and we got a call about a baby um, that needed a home. Um, so for us, it was just more of a, it was a combination of things, just talking about it forever. Saying, oh gosh, are we going to do this? Are we knew this? And then finally decided to do it. And then me meeting this little girl that really kind of pushed us to that point of saying, right. yeah, we're going to do it.
1: Yeah. And so the little girl was placed with you, right?
0: No, no, she was not, she was, she was in a home that I, I, was in a foster home that I had, had worked in before. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so then who did end up, I mean, eventually you ended up fostering two children, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did they come to you as babies? They did. Yeah. So
0: we, um, we realized the day that we got licensed as a foster home, we got a call about our now oldest son and it was one of those hey, this is so-and-so from the state of Missouri. Um, we have a baby in the hospital. Could you be available today um, if the judge brings this child in? So we're like, sure. You know, It wasn't that easy of an answer. I mean, we knew we wanted to do it, but it was more like, sure. You know, like, <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> uh, And uh, it was 4.30, 4.45. Uh, he calls back. Can you be at the hospital within about 20 minutes? So we went from being like, Never been parents to, especially a newborn, to driving to the hospital to get a newborn baby and bring him home, which is an extremely surreal experience.
1: I can uh, only imagine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we didn't have anything. We had nothing. Car seat and formula. And that was it really. But we fostered him for close to two years before we were able to adopt. And mm-hmm. that in itself was such a wonderful experience um, working with his biological mom and
1: oh, wow. uh, really
0: so. Seeing the whole picture, which I had not working in child welfare. I knew that reunification is the number one goal. And I totally respected that goal. And, yes. and we, and we wanted that, you know, it's one of those things where it's heartbreaking because you just don't know, and you can't help but get attached. You need to get attached for the child's sake. That's right. So you're constantly on this roller, this roller coaster of emotion. Like I want her to get her life together. Oh my gosh, I love this child so much, but I want her to get her life together, but I love this child so much that, mm. you know, about three months into that process, I was literally crying and praying in front of his crib whenever he was sleeping in his crib. And mm. I just said to God, you know, your, your, your will, not mine. Yeah. And I feel like the Lord answered me with the words, this is not about you, Caroline. Yeah. I, you know, this isn't about you. So with sort of that experience of fostering, that's also when I started thinking about my medical history of barrenness, thinking You know, I grew up thinking, "Why me? Why me? Why me? Why me?" me? And then once I started fostering and seeing the impact we had on this other family and this child, I realized, you know, why not me? You know, why not me? So we were we were able to adopt him. He is now fourteen. He'll be fifteen this year, and it's killing me. Just killing. He's like my first baby. I mean, I love my other two kids, but you know, no.
1: Listen, mine's only ten. My oldest, and I mean, Sam, my husband, will say. You almost have him out the door already. And I'm like, because he doesn't even hug me, is me. You know I mean, like, <laughs> I know. Oh. And I'm super close with my oldest son. Yes. And so there is, it's just hard. It is hard to watch them grow up. But
0: I know. I'm like, only like three and a half years until he's an adult. Like, oh, and, you know, I still, and it's one of the things. Seems- because we went through so much when, before and while we were fostering him and on the day of our adoption, those memories are still so um, impactful to me. Like, it's like, but sometimes I feel like, well, we just got through adopting him. That's what I feel mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so impactful and special. But then, you know, he can, he'll be able to drive
1: soon. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's the funny thing we say, too. We're like, you know, remember when you thought only the old people looked at you and said, yeah. Oh, treasure these moments. They go by yes. fast. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, we're the old people because yes. now we're like, enjoy those toddler years. Like, I know. well, and so your middle, you, ha- you have three kids. Mm-hmm. And so how did you end up adopting the other two? Yeah. So about, we kind of
0: went on hold for about six months after our experience with our oldest son, after adoption, you know, just all of it. We just need to, to breathe and be mm-hmm. what I would say as normal as a foster family can feel. And so we did respite a couple times where you just help out another family by watching another kid for them. And around about two weeks before Christmas, my, um, see here, he was almost three, um, came to us and said, Santa Claus is going to bring us a baby girl for a uh, uh, Santa Claus is going to bring me a baby sister for Christmas. And I was like, oh, sweetie, I don't think Santa Claus can do that this year. (laughs) But sure enough, the week after Christmas, um, the state called and said, Hey, there's a a baby girl that's in a foster home who, um, the foster family is not going to be a permanent option. Um, we are looking for more of a permanent placement for this child.
1: Wow. He's a little prophet.
0: um, (laughs) I know. I know they they gave us about a week to think about it and it, it was just more of those are we are we ready for this again like cuz once you know we're once you say yes and you got to be all you sh- in you need to yeah you got to be all in and plus our extended family they were all just like oh no we don't know if we're ready for this again cuz they all fell in love with our oldest son and absolutely you know that's something that fostering I Hope more people realize is that it's, it's not just the foster family's hearts that get broken sometimes in it. It's it's the other people around them too. So we said yes, and um, her situation was a lot different than my oldest sons. So we were able to adopt her when she was about fifteen months.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she, you know, her foster parent brought her over and she showed up on our doorstep, and so our Two and a half year old opened up the door and there's a baby sister. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, um, Again, very surreal. And so we were like, okay, now we have a baby girl in our house. Yeah. Um, And so, but her case was definitely different. We were able, um, we adopted her when she was a little bit younger than our oldest son. Yeah. Yeah. and then after that, you know, we thought about continuing, but we vote like my husband is an only child and I do have a sister who's about six or so years older than me. So sort of felt like I was an only child, especially yes. in my, as I got older. So we felt like two, a boy and a girl. And the fact that we actually adopted the only two children that we fostered, mm-hmm. which doesn't really happen that often. I mean, usually people foster for a while. We just felt like, man, we are so fortunate. We decided to close our license and close that chapter in our lives. And I just had this feeling, I I just, this feeling that I was, there was going to be another kid. I didn't know who. And so once you adopt in foster care, typically, if for some reason, another family member comes into custody that belongs to a child that you fostered, you will get the call. So I thought, well, maybe there's going to be another sibling born, that yeah. kind of deal. But in 2012, I had a relative who um, was really struggling in addiction mm-hmm. and homelessness, and she gave birth to a baby boy. And I watched her grow up. Um, I was really close to her family and stuff. And so he was not brought into custody, but he was what they call a diversion where they place with family members. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was bounced around a lot from different family members. And so finally, when he was about seven months old, my husband and I petitioned for guardianship of him because he needed to not bounce around. So we were like the fifth setting he lived in by the age he was seven months old.
1: Right.
0: And a few months into us having him, uh, my cousin said, will you guys adopt him? And so we did. So we had our kind of a surprise adoption of our third child that I just – I had a feeling and I I even had a feeling it was going to be a boy. Like I just felt like God was just saying, just, you know, no, there's going to be one more, you know, there's going to be one more. And I kept some of my daughter's clothing, but I kept a lot more of my son's clothing, which was so
1: interesting. isn't it? I
0: know. Um, So, yeah. So my youngest son literally wore almost every outfit, my oldest son wore (laughs) because I had all these clothes. Yeah. Uh, That's fantastic. I have to tell you though. So my two oldest were like, by the time he came around, they were six and four. And then we had the seven month old and both of them kept saying, Oh, well, we're going to get twins next. We're going to get twins next because in their world, (laughs) show up on your doorstep. Right. I mean, that's just how it works. And I was like, no, we are not getting twins next. And I'm thinking, please, please, Jesus.
1: (laughs) No, I'm not having this feeling.
0: (laughs) Now that, now that we're, we're, older, old enough to recognize our limitations. I mean, I would love for there to be another baby in this house. Don't get me wrong. I would love it, especially twins. I'm like, Oh, maybe, you know, but then I'm thinking, no, Caroline, you're like, you guys are beyond that.
1: I know exactly what you're saying. It's true. It's funny though, how in your heart, you can kind of know a little bit when you're finished. Mm -hmm. Um, I always encourage people like if you don't feel that your family is complete like, don't let it be. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, look into that, whether it's from you, adoption, foster, whatever that is, that feeling is usually there for a reason. And so you have worked in the child welfare system for a very long time, and gone through just so many things with fostering, adoption, just knowing the ins and outs. What are some of the positive changes that you feel like you've seen in the area of just the child welfare system in general in the last 20 years?
0: Oh, goodness. Um, I'm so glad that you asked for the positive changes because sometimes we focus so much on the negative that could happen within the system and yeah. there are a lot of negatives within the system but yeah. for the positives i've seen at least and i can really only speak to the area that i live in, right. I live in. and I'm, I'm hoping and thinking that it might be relevant for other states as well but um more of a push for keeping siblings together yeah uh, larger sibling groups there has been more pushing towards placing with family members when suitable and appropriate i've seen more just more awareness of child welfare system in general, of child abuse and neglect. I think part of that is, is one of the good things we can say about social media Yeah, is that people are becoming more aware of these issues. That's right. Um, I've seen a lot more church engagement happening mm-hmm. in the past 20 years. You know, it was always when I first started it and, and this, this wasn't true for every church, but it sometimes felt like us versus them. Like, well, you know, especially because I and I work for the state, so it definitely wasn't us, felt like an us versus them.
1: Oh, and deep. we should just be partners.
0: Yeah. And that has definitely, I mean, so much so to like our state has like church initiatives for foster parenting. I mean, I work for a Christian child welfare agency that works very heavily with the state in partnerships. So, so there's definitely been more of that focus as well. I also think trauma informed care yes. has come to the forefront, which is vital. I think yes. I've had people ask me, well, what what would you recommend us do? You know, we're we're considering foster parenting. My very first words are, make sure you research trauma informed care.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Read everything, get your hands on it. Go to training, you know, because it's it's so important.
1: Well and my my sister-in-law um and brother-in-law, when they brought their daughter home actually from India, they they were missionaries <laughs> there. And but I mean it's been a long time ago. And so when they were learning about like reactive attachment disorder and, you know, I mean, she was doing some of the groundwork because there just wasn't hardly anything out there. And now you can say that. And a lot of people, at least if they've had any involvement or read at all about foster care, you've heard that diagnosis a little bit, but then, I mean, it was like, what are you talking about? So you're so right in that.
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, those are, those are some of the positives I've seen
1: well and so in regards to this i mean and we're going to close out with this is there anything that you would really like to see the body of christ do better in this area i mean it's so vital for us it's mm-hmm. so as someone who is a believer and who also works and knows the system well um what would you say to that
0: gosh it's i mean there's so many things i think that all of us could do better. Um, and since we are the church, <laughs> I'm including right. myself in that as well. A couple of things come to mind. Number one would be not maybe, and this is, a, I shouldn't say number one, because it doesn't really matter what order, but I think just an outpouring of even more grace is needed mm. for people that work within the system, for attorneys, for judges, for the biological parents, just. Loads and loads of grace. Um, I, I make the mistake sometimes. Whenever there's a local article on maybe a child abuse case, I make the mistakes of reading the comments, mm. and it's really heartbreaking. And not that people should not be held accountable, but it always feels like you know. I've been on both sides. I've been a foster parent, adopted parent, and I also work in the system. Like mm-hmm. we're human, you know we. <laughs> we get attached to these kids too, you know, we, our heart breaks for these situations as well. So I think just the outpouring of grace towards people that work within the system Mm. and pray, praying for people in the system, it's a tough field to work in. I don't know how I've made it for 20 years. I think I've just gotten past that point to where I I can do it now, you know? Um, So definitely grace also. So the word orphan is biblical. I don't think there's Mm. anything wrong with that word. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I do think maybe, taking what we might call an orphan ministry in our churches and evolving that to the point to where that actually includes at-risk intact families, I love that. Um, where that includes working, mentoring, ministering to birth parents whose children are in custody, where that includes bringing older youth who are in the system who maybe have some struggles, probably do have some struggles. And maybe they don't fit the mold of what you expect them to be, but bring them to the table, um, start working with them. So it's sort of an expansion of orphan care because it feels like sometimes when people call and they're like, well, I'm part of an orphan ministry team and we want to help people adopt. It's like, that's the only, the only focus is on adoption. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I, I love adoption. Clearly I love adoption.
1: Right. But that should not be our goal.
0: No. So in those areas, I can see a greater need for the church to get involved. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Well, and I want to ask you only because I just interviewed someone recently who in our area, and I know it's a national thing, but it's not maybe in every single state or location. But Safe Families uh-huh. is an organization where I just interviewed um, the director of our Raleigh area mm-hmm. because I feel like they're doing what you're talking about in the sense of it's an at-risk family that comes to them. And so, you know, you you have a family that would be, I'm going to take on this child for just a couple of weeks while maybe this person is um, trying to you know, get a job or they're trying to secure a place to live or whatever. So that's one thing. So I don't know if you've heard of safe families, but um, in our area, it feels like they're doing amazing work.
0: Yeah. And we're definitely seeing that more innovative, um, thinking about it, more programs that are offered, better community support. I know it's very cliche to say it, but it absolutely takes a village. You know, it just, it does. And as far as being trauma-informed, I think trauma-informed care um, belongs in every school system, in every courthouse, oh, yeah. even ones that deal with adults, because trauma start can be in childhood, and it is in childhood, and that goes into our adulthood.
1: That's right. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of us who need to basically work back through that trauma, and now they're adults, and it's just continuing the cycle. So that's a good perspective.
0: Yeah. So I think for the church, you know, to recognize that, you know, yes, you are called to do this. And if you, if you say, and I've actually said this to somebody before in a nice way, <laughs> I said, if you, if you say that you're going to call foster parenting a ministry, then you need to act like Jesus. <laughs>
1: like oh, wow. um,
0: if you're going to call it that, then that's what it needs to be. So for me, if a church is going to call this a foster, foster care ministry or an orphan care ministry, whatever they want to call it, then they need to embrace that for what it is that it's not going to feel good all the time. You're probably get your heart's broken as well. You may even get angry and that's okay. It's okay. But you're doing this, you know, God doesn't do us, call us to do easy things. He calls us to do hard, hard things. And we oh, can't man. walk away from that calling just because it starts feeling hard.
1: You know, amen to that you know? for sure. So tell us if someone wants to connect with you, where can they do that?
0: So my um, blog is barrentoblessed.com. to and then on Facebook I'm also at barren to blessed, and on Instagram I'm barren to blessed. <laughs> um, it's just a name that I kind of came up with on a whim, to be honest with you, and it just kind of stuck. So um, that's where you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. My email is barren to blessed at gmail. So I often get emails from people around the United States, also around the world, just asking me questions, which I just want to add is such an incredible bonus point. I think to all of this, because growing up, I thought I would never talk about to anybody. And now I have people from, I mean, the middle East, people from Australia. I'm talking and talks with someone from uh, Europe right now.
1: Just incredible.
0: I, I know it is really incredible. Just asking me, is it okay that I feel this way? And, you know, who they are, they themselves are walking through infertility, just to be able to like minister to them. um, It just proves to me that God can take any story and turn
1: it around. Absolutely. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for sharing your story and for the work that you do. I'm grateful that you were with me today.
0: Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So did someone pop in your mind while listening to Caroline? Will you pause and share this episode with them? Did something Caroline say resonate with you? If yes, will you share it with me? You can do that by sending me a direct message on Instagram or leaving a comment on this week's episode post at Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber. You can also send me an email at graceenoughpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening
0: to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.